Welcome. I'm Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. Here I am again, as promised, with a half biscuit. We are going to talk about schizophrenia. As I mentioned in my episode earlier this week about Herbert Baumeister, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the big dudes that have been diagnosed with this. A little disclaimer here, I say schizophrenia. Um, A lot of people say schizophrenia. I think either are probably correct, but technically it is schizophrenia. So I'll try not to say it too much just in case that annoys you, but here we go. At the website livingwithschizophreniauk.org, they had a really interesting little brief history and some things I had no idea. It was first described back in 1896. It didn't have the name schizophrenia then. It was considered a form of premature dementia. You know, the original treatments for it, all they had at, you know, their disposal was like shock treatment and confinement. And until like antipsychotic drugs were introduced, they're they're really, they could just confine them and do some fairly unpleasant things to them like shock treatment, give them large doses of sedatives. There were a few places, institutions that really were sanctuaries. And people suffering from this disorder could really benefit from that. But unfortunately, a lot of institutions were not very progressive and people endured years of abusive treatment. And, you know, we've all seen horror movies where there's the crazy doctor at the asylum and the awful experiments and stuff that are are done upon these people. So maybe that's a little extreme, but, you know, they definitely were not treated well. Here is something really crazy I had no idea. The Third Reich was one of the most significant challenges for people that suffered from schizophrenia in the history of the condition. And this wasn't just because thousands of people with it died as a result, but because in modern European history, it pointed to the constant threat that these people lived with from the followers of eugenics. In the 1930s, the Nazi regime in Germany started this program where they were going to eradicate schizophrenia from the race. And they were going to do this by use of euthanasia. So this system involved people that were diagnosed with it were assessed by three doctors that were approved by the regime. And if two of those agreed that this person had schizophrenia or some mental disorder, then they were sent to be killed. Initially, it was with lethal injection, but later it was gas chambers. So in Germany, this practice was pretty widely known and it did attract some opposition, mostly from the Roman Catholic and Lutheran religious leaders. So in 1941, the Roman Catholic prelate, Archbishop Gowan, condemned it publicly, and he did this from the pulpit. And as a result, the Nazis pulled the plug on that program. However, it was only a temporary um, setback because six months later, they reinstated it with renewed vigor. And ultimately, they took the lives of over a quarter of a million disabled and mentally ill people before the end of the Second World War. In the middle of the 20th century, they found that antihistamines seemed to have some positive effects on controlling the psychotic symptoms associated with schizophrenia. So that was kind of the first generation of antipsychotic drugs. Then in the 1950s, a naval surgeon 
experiment with a drug called chlorpromazine, which I probably mutilated that. And it was used initially for post-operative shock. And then he found that it had a really relaxing effect in his patients. And and then the, the question arises, well, could it be used in psychiatry? And so it was the first of the new drugs that were eventually to become known as antipsychotics. According to the Schizophrenia Treatment Advocacy Center, it is a chronic and severe brain disorder that interferes with a person's ability to think clearly, manage emotions, make decisions, and relate to others. This disorder barely affects 1% of the population, but it is one of the most disabling diseases that affect mankind. So people who suffer with paranoid schizophrenia, they have auditory hallucinations and delusions of persecution. And these thoughts can drive their behavior. Most of them hear voices, and those voices can be threatening, they can give commands, or those voices can just laugh at them. Since hearing voices or auditory hallucinations are one of the most common things that people with schizophrenia experience, I wanted to look into it a little more. And what I found was really super fascinating. So the voices are usually the most difficult thing for someone with schizophrenia to deal with. And that is the one thing that can lead to dangerous behavior. And it is one of the biggest issues for people that have schizophrenia. You might wonder, what is it like when they hear voices? So to the person hearing it, the voices are coming from inside them, but they are indistinguishable from real people's voices. So they may hear voices they recognize of a friend or a relative. They may hear a voice that doesn't really have a personality. It's just a voice. The experience of hearing this voice, though, is not to be confused with like what you and I would experience with our normal inner voice, the inner conversations we have with ourselves. These voices that are caused by psychosis are totally different. They are like hearing a real person in the same room speaking. At that same website, livingwithschizophreniauk.org, I read where it says they did research and scientists showed that the parts of the brain that are activated when they hear real speech are also activated when people suffering from this particular auditory hallucination. For some people, it will be just one voice, and in others, it could be multiple voices at the same time. So then what do these voices say? They are what psychiatrists refer to as command hallucinations, where this voice is giving the sufferer a direct instruction. The voices might also be critical of the person, ridiculing them. This might just be intermittent, or it could be constant all day long and make comments on every little action or thought that they have. It could be so personal that this person might be reluctant to tell others what the voices are saying. So you wouldn't be surprised to find out that this can lead to complete defeat of the person's self-esteem. Unfortunately, the most common experience for people with psychotic illness when it comes to hearing voices is that these voices are usually nasty and they abuse them. So when they appear as a psychotic symptom, it can also indicate that there are other conditions maybe bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder. I read this interesting little thing that people who are born deaf and later go on to develop schizophrenia, they can also experience hearing voices. So the big question becomes, why does hearing these voices cause so much suffering and pain in the people that are experiencing it? It is because these voices, even though irrational, and the voices suggest things that are dangerous or weird, they cause suffering because they know the person intimately. 
they're coming from inside of them. So they totally understand their entire psyche. They know the strengths and weaknesses, fears and hates, the things the person cares about, that, that, that they love. And because they know you so completely, they will attack you where they can hurt you the most and do the most damage. They might tell the person to harm a family member that they love or to give up something they enjoy doing. They could also be told to harm themselves. Another reason they're really so effective at hurting the person is that there's nowhere to hide from them. Wherever that person goes, that voice is with them. And I would think that another really big reason why it would be so stressful is that we all want to think that we are in control of our own thoughts and our actions, yet you're carrying this voice around with you that you have no control over. It is controlling you, and that to me would be horrible. So there were quite a few of the um, well-known serial killers that were diagnosed with it, but I real quick wanted to kind of go back to Herb Baumeister, but because we talked about him being diagnosed as a child, which is incredibly rare. So I looked up an article um, on Cedar sinais website, and they listed some early warning signs in children, um, trouble telling dreams from reality, confused thinking, um, de detailed and bizarre thoughts and ideas, fear that someone or something is going to harm them. They see or hear or feel things that aren't real. They hear voices. They have lots of anxiety or fear, lack of emotional expression when they speak, trouble with schoolwork, social withdrawal, sudden agitation. And here's one that I find interesting when um, we're thinking about Herb. They have disorganized behavior, such as doing private things in public. When he was in elementary school, remember he urinated in a teacher's desk. Then as an adult, he urinated on a letter, which I think urination is generally considered a private thing. So I thought that was a bit interesting. Back to the guys we're going to talk about today. Some of the serial killers that were diagnosed with it are David Berkowitz, which is, of course, the son of Sam. David killed six people in the 70s. Supposedly, a dog told him to. Ed Gein who was the inspiration for Norman Bates, uh, Buffalo Bill, and Leatherface. He murdered and mutilated his victims, and he kept some trophies. David Gonzalez killed four, and he claimed to have been inspired by Nightmare on Elm Street. Jared Lee Loeffner, he killed six and wounded 13 in 2011, and that included U.S. Representative Gabriel Giffords. Then James Egan Holmes killed 12, and injured 70 in Aurora, Colorado. Supposedly 20 doctors, this is according to his lawyer, diagnosed him with schizophrenia. We're going to dive deeper into David Berkowitz and James Holmes. So David Berkowitz was adopted, and by all accounts, he was very antisocial. His mother had passed away of cancer, and his father had remarried. Now his father moves to Florida and leaves David alone. David was in the army for about three years, and while he was in the army, he showed a lot of anger towards women. In this phase of his life, he was kind of delving into the occult, like he was looking for some sort of fulfillment, and that's where he thought he was going to find it. So David gets his own place, and he has a neighbor named Sam Carr. And Sam Carr has a dog named Harvey, who apparently barks habitually all night long. David does not like this dog. David locks himself into his apartment, and he writes things on the wall, like, in this hole lies the wicked king, and kill for my master, and I turn children into killers. 
When David is eventually arrested, he seems almost happy that he's caught. And I, he says to the police, well, you got me. How come it took you such a long time? As they're interviewing him, David tells the police that the dog Harvey, who is Sam's dog, hence the name Son of Sam, is actually a demon. And that this demon dog told him which women he is to kill. David gave into this voice or these voices and his reason is so that they would leave him alone. So he ends up being um, convicted and sent, sentenced to 365 years in prison. While in prison, many, many years later, he is interviewed by Dr. Scott Bond. And he tells Dr. Bond that because of his obsession with the occult, he was thinking that Satan was going to free him from pain and loneliness if he committed these murders. David also admits to Dr. Bond that the dog did not tell him to do anything. Now, as I was kind of reading through this, I'm thinking, well, maybe this is him covering because he doesn't want people to think of him as insane. But he claims that he did believe in Satan and that Satan was going to ease his pain. He now claims that he is a born-again Christian. So you could believe in Satan and, you know, be a born-again Christian, but where the whole dog is possessed, why did he write the things on the wall? He has not been, from what I read, he did not receive any psychiatric treatment while in prison, nor has he ever been medicated, which is generally what the treatment is for schizophrenia. I have to wonder, was he really delusional? Was it an act? Part of me thinks he really was delusional, but now later all these years after being in prison, he wants to come across that, no, I just pretended, I faked it all. If any of you have ever watched the show Mindhunter on Netflix, they kind of show this, like he acts like, nope, I didn't hear anything from the dog. That was all made up. He just wanted to kill people, and so he blamed it on the dog. So it's really kind of up to any of us to decide what we choose to believe, because if you listen to David, you'll have no idea. And I do understand that he was probably diagnosed by an actual doctor, but it's not impossible to believe that a doctor can be fooled. And I'm just gonna leave it at that. So let's talk about James Egan Holmes now. Technically, he is not a serial killer, he is a mass murderer. On July 20th, 2012, James walked into the Century 16 movie theater and opened fire. He killed 12 and he injured 70. He was subsequently sentenced to 12 life sentences plus 3,317 years. According to his lawyer, 20 doctors plus a therapist all diagnosed him with schizophrenia. Now, I couldn't find anywhere that he heard voices, but in a journal, he had written a sentence that totally makes me think that the disordered thinking was absolutely a thing with James. This is word for word what he wrote, quote, why, 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 why? Life has no value whatsoever. Untruth is converted to truth by violence times zero. Problem equals question mark times zero. Based on an incorrect theorem, zero equals zero. Problem solved. So James's attorney, David King, had made a statement to the effect that by the time James had stepped into that theater, his perception of reality was skewed, it was malformed, and that he didn't live in the same world that the rest of us live in. He also said that James was pursued, commanded, compelled, pursued by psychotic delusions. 
So let's go back and we'll take a quick peek at James from the beginning. He was born on December 13th in 1987. He was born in San Diego to a father that was a mathematician and a scientist, and his mother was an RN. He was once described by a supervisor who he did an internship for as stubborn, uncommunicative, and socially inept. He got an undergraduate degree in neuroscience in 2010, and he received highest honors. He was a member of several honor societies. In 2011, he enrolled in a PhD program, but by 2012, his academic performance had begun to decline, and three days after he failed an oral exam in 2012, he dropped out. A month before the shooting, Dr. Lynn Fenton told campus police that James had made homicidal statements and that he should be considered a threat. And yet, for some reason, she didn't hospitalize him or suggest that he be hospitalized. She knows he's a threat, but we're just going to leave it at that. So two weeks before the shooting, he sends a text to a graduate student and asks if they've heard of dysphoric mania. He then warned this student to stay away from him because he's, quote, bad news. So dysphoric mania is an older term that is used for bipolar disorder with mixed features. So basically, it's experiencing the mania, the hypomania, and the depression all at once instead of separately as is normal with bipolar disorder. Now, people with bipolar disorder do not walk into theaters airing Batman movies and open fire. It's really interesting to read about James because you will get some really conflicting accounts of why he did what he did. The crazy orange hair, it was an homage to the Joker. James himself says that that wasn't the reason. I have no idea what exactly in him broke, snapped, was miswired that would cause him to do what he did. 20 doctors and a therapist say it was schizophrenia. Something was not right, and you can see it. If you watch footage of his trial, you can tell by looking at him that something is terribly wrong. But the really big question would be, if he was seeking treatment because he was seeing a doctor and she said he was dangerous, what failed him? Who failed him? Could this have been prevented had he been properly medicated or... Maybe he had been, and he just chose not to take the medication. I don't know. All I do know is that what he did was horrific, and he is where he deserves to be. So let's say James Holmes and David Berkowitz do suffer from schizophrenia. Then we kind of have to ask, why does one person with schizophrenia go over the deep edge and become a killer when most people that are diagnosed with it do not? In an article on C.S. Mott's Children's Hospital site, they talk about how most people suffering from schizophrenia are not violent, but they do offer signs or indications that it could potentially go that way. So some of the signs are talking about violence, especially if it is directed like at a specific group of people or specific type of person. David Berkowitz wanted to kill women, though he also killed men because they were with the women. They could be writing or drawing about death or violence. Once again, David's writing's on the wall. They won't take responsibility for their action. In David's case, he blamed the dog. Then later, he blamed his desire to want to please Satan. So either or, he is not being responsible for what he did. They might buy or talk about buying weapons or poison, things that can be used to kill. Drinking heavily or doing drugs more frequently. They may have increased fear of other people. This would be the paranoia presentation. 
They could also just come right out and admit that they hear voices that tell them that they should harm or kill another person. In David's case, it was the dog. Being aware of these signs is the first step in seeking help or in recognizing the signs in those around you. The National Institute for Mental Health, NIMH, lists a lot of resources and agencies for people that are seeking help. That website is nimh.inh.gov. You can also find mental health resources in your area by contacting the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-662-4357. Mental health is often a taboo subject and the signs are often overlooked. People who need help don't find it. If someone you love needs assistance or you need assistance, please get help. I hope you found this interesting, informative, and it helped you pass a little bit of time. If you would please subscribe, I'd appreciate it. Rate and review, that'd be great. Here's your final crumb. Having mental health issues is not the problem. Not seeking help is. Thanks for joining me. Bye.